Hi, welcome to the Praxis Behind the Obscure podcast. And today I have a very special guest. I have uh, Carl Abrahamson, and he is a writer, a filmmaker. Uh, he's written very, very extensively on uh, occultism in general and kind of the impact uh, that it has on culture, everything from you know, music and art and cinema, literature. And uh, he actually recently gave a lecture on... Uh, it was about, I think it was about the history of magic. I watched like a few hours uh, lecture on your uh, program with Jake Coburn. And uh, it was a very fascinating lecture. So I figured, you know, to reach out and have you on the show. So uh, for the listeners, can you kind of introduce yourself and how you got initially interested in these uh, esoteric and occult topics and practices? Absolutely. And I'll try to keep it sort of uh, to the condensed version. <laughs> uh, and... and um, I'm from uh, Sweden and I'm, I'm uh, 55 years old. Actually, in Asia soon, I'll be 56 years old. It's <laughs> soon my birthday. Uh, and uh, I think uh, what happens is that usually in, in your teenage years, you become interested in things that will help you define who you are, you know, in terms of just sort of generating or accumulating an identity by uh, seeking resonances in culture mainly and of course I did the same thing and I became interested in you know weird music and weird culture and movies and also occultism and you know it's basically kind of a I don't know predictable trajectory for for Western European kids um, with a slightly <laughs> intellectual bent uh, and I, I think that um, in this uh, how should I put it this uh, uh, morass of um, you know, overwhelming things that you can find and could find even then, meaning pre-internet, uh, you, you do find after a while the gems, you know, the, the jewels and the lotus that give you this resonance that you're after. And um, I became very interested in, for instance, Western ceremonial magic. I also became interested in, in uh, what's called LaVey and Satanism uh, mm -hmm. and um, the sort of contemporary magic at the time of uh, the Temple of Psychic Youth and uh, the work of Genesis Peorage. And uh, it just sort of, I don't know, snowballed is perhaps too strong, but it just, you know, um, year by year, I found myself uh, more and more fascinated. So it wasn't just like a fad or something trendy that, you know, caught my eye. Uh, I became involved and I was already at the time like a networking person, having my own music fan scene, meeting a lot of bands that came to Sweden. I traveled a lot to the UK and other places and, and made interviews and took pictures. So that kind of I don't know, squirrel attitude in a way. Uh, you know, you, you, you leave your tree and you go down and you try to find acorns of different kinds and you take them back to your little nest. That's basically, that kind of psychology has always been with me. And there was a shift uh, around, I would say, 88, 89, when I left the sort of mu music fan scene making and started, in, you know, delved into the occultural uh, one instead. Uh, by starting the Fenris Wolf. It's, it's a journal that still uh, exists. Um, and that was, for me, totally a logical prog progression because it, it, it contained so much more than mainly like a new record by the Cramps or whatever. Um, and then I think that I had uh, become, you know, at least one phase of individuation. Again, the squirrel is a pretty good, uh, you know, metaphor. Uh, going out into the world, uh, meeting, seeking contact with a lot of people in the uh, sort of occult world. And strangely enough to me, I found myself incredibly welcomed in environments and by people I didn't really, you know, I couldn't even in, in my wildest imagination, um, you know, visualize or envision that this would happen. So I was, you know, hanging out with, with uh, Kenneth Anger and Anton LaVey. And of course, Genesis I'd been working with for several, several years since the mid um, 1980s. And it was more and more and more of these, um, I wouldn't even say synchronicities. It was more like <laughs> mechanical almost. Mm -hmm. I, I uh, made myself available. I sought people out and found that most people are actually very, very nice and very, very uh, eager to talk and, you know, things like that. So um, that carried on and, you know, I, I got I engaged in 
the Temple of Psychic Youth and the OTO mm -hmm. and in uh, the Church of Satan and uh, uh, some other things too. Basically just uh, going to school, I guess, you know, it's like beyond <laughs> beyond kindergarten. It was more like, you know, going to occult college in a way. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 you know, taking these different classes in different traditions. And um, what I think bloomed out of that uh, inquisitive soil was the Fenris Wolf on one hand, and also this thing that I called magical anthropology, meaning there wasn't, wasn't just me as a magician, uh, you know, being trained or learning things. It was also the thing where I had these goggles on, which had an, an anthropological, um, uh, you know, glasses in a way in, in the frames. Uh, so my fascination for different cultures, kinds of magic or historical magics and all these things um, filled and still fill me with uh, awe and interest and curiosity. And it's something that I you know, spend a lot of time studying and thinking about, you know, and I've come to the conclusion that, that uh, um, every, every human being, every individual, you know, they, they are ma magical uh, in the sense that they um, are guided by magical thinking uh, much more than they are willing to, for the most part, acknowledge. And I'm thinking, of course, you know, like, Western, you know, empiricism and, and rationalism and this kind of left brain scenario, even those people are completely guided by magical thinking and fantasy and daydreaming and, and psychological compensations. I think one has to take this kind of uh, thing into account when we look at the problems we have uh, today. And I do believe that the resurgence or uh, maybe you know, um, just uh, things become more and more visible in a way. Magical things, whether it's in pop culture or, you know, ancient grimoires, whatever, it takes on many different forms. I think that's uh, necessary for people to reappraise and look at things, the problems today, from a different perspective. One having to do more with uh, uh, down-to-earth perspectives. We need to be more involved in nature as such and leave all the human constructs, meaning abstractions like monotheist religions and, and uh, two great collective movements and stuff like that. So, and I think that the magical anthropological uh, perspective and, and these aspects can be very, very helpful uh, in this regard, meaning actually as some kind of possible uh, lifesaver or civilization saver. Mm -hmm. That's the short condensed version. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. I mean, there's a lot of different, uh, I suppose, threads we can go off because you mentioned, you know, so many things there, right? Like I know, I know, I know. Anthropological side and, you know, different orders and uh, different movements you were a part of. But uh, well, one thing that definitely has my interest um, was the Temple of Psychic Youth and your involvement yeah. in that. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I just kind of, uh, it'd be great if you can share a bit about that. And I think that you had mentioned um, elsewhere that you were sort of, I, I guess, like the head of one of the European chapters or you had some kind of role like that, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, what happened was that that um, I had been like a fan, a fan of Robin Grissel and a fan of early psychic TV. And of course, they were very uh, extroverted and uh, networking and they had a lot of uh, dissemination of information. It wasn't just the records, there were many other things like a, like a really an, a, a culture around the, the band, so to speak. And, and the Temple of Psychic Youth um, caught my eye, my attention, and I found it very interesting. But the first meeting was, so actually I subscribed to information from them um, from I think 1984 or something. And um, there was, they were here in, uh, here. <laughs> they were in Stockholm in, in uh, 84. Uh, also for like a video screening and concert and things like that. But I didn't really get to meet Jan and, and the others at the time until 1986 when I went to London to make uh, an interview for my music fan scene. But it, I was very, very, uh, you know, uh, magically inclined and very, very interested, like a little sponge. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was the beginning. And then uh, we got on very well and we, you know, discussed this thing, you know, 
temp the topi thing is uh, spreading and i was thinking you know maybe i could do something in sweden so it started out as topi scan which was like an access point for scandinavia mm. and then it grew and grew and there were some um, challenges with european administration so i took that on and it became topi europe mm. um, and then that lasted up until in 1991, approximately, when the entire topi of that phase uh, sort of fizzled out for for many reasons. Mm, okay. What what were some of the um, like activities that uh, topi was involved with, and sort of like the underlying principles behind it, um, and also like overall and like a bigger picture? What do you see as like almost as an anthropologist, right? Like. How do you see, um, you know, Topi's role, like the grand scheme of things, like what kind of impact did it have on the culture and culture and at large in general? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, uh, very, very substantial um, and not only because I'm partial, but, but it's just this thing where, you know, if you give things enough time and, and you see what kind of, uh, was it only something that was happening then or did it have ripple effects? And does it still have ripple effects? And the thing is that, that I think the interest in Topi now is probably greater than it was back then. You know, there's this documentary coming out, I hope this year, called Message from the Temple. It's a very, very ambitious uh, thing. And it was just um, another documentary uh, actually about Kum transmissions, which was like their perf Jan's performance troupe with some other people. Uh, also a very ambitious documentary. And, and um, it's out there in, in sort of highbrow culture uh, through, through these kinds of things where a later generation is trying to understand what was going on because there were many cool things going on. So on one hand, you have this, what you could call uh, an occultural network. Uh, it was definitely a think tank. It was a magical order, but it wasn't... Um, in the it wasn't in the traditional sense, you know, we have a hierarchic structure with degree systems and stuff like that. Um, it was Topi was very much a bridge between what uh, Jen called the museum of magic and something that was completely contemporary. And uh, by saying completely contemporary, that also, you know, mean meant or also still means. Uh, taking other things into account. Not only, you know, this is the magic secret, we have it, we can, you know, teach it to you, whatever, you know, meaning this occult aspect. It was a way to uh, look at the, uh, you know, the, the power of, of transformation in different and, and uh, new ways. And so you had the old secrets, meaning, for instance, like uh, sexual magic and the uh, sigilization uh, via Austin Osman's bear. But of course, the actual mind frame and the theories around that come have you know been clothed in many different cultures throughout the millennia, actually. Uh, so you have that tradition going, uh, which we could call an um, ecstatic, let's call it an ecstatic tradition. But then there was this thing that made it unique at the time, it was the integration of culture. Uh, the integration of culture that sort of carried a philosophy, but it was never demagogic. It was never overtly political. So some people say that Topi were, you know, anarchists. I would decline and uh, <laughs> say that's not the case at all. They were, uh, if anything, anarchic that's a different thing you know the difference between an anarchist and an anarch an anarch is someone who is free because he or she is on the outside an anarchist is on the inside fighting and and i think that distinction needs to be made uh, because there were no overall you know uh, there were certainly moral uh, issues and you know basic things um, but there were no like you know political dogma or anything like that basically Topi took on uh, Thelema, took on the Thelemic philosophy that Crowley had defined, and that's like ultra-individualistic. Mm -hmm. However, in Topi, there was a lot of experimentation going on uh, together, like, you know, communal rituals, but it wasn't 
you know, like in Freemasonry where everything was, you know, already presented and written out. And it was much more of an intuitive flow of experimentation. And that also, um, you know, uh, entailed uh, individuals who were active experimenting also with, with uh, sex sexuality in itself and different sexualities and also with, you know, psychedelics and others, you know, trans-inducing, um, ecstasy-inducing uh, techniques, including shamanism and drumming and being out in nature. And, and uh, it was just a very, uh, uh, it was a free environment. Uh, it was not something that was dictated. Uh, I, I came up with several things for Topiscan and, and then as yes, more people got involved, we came up with things that people in the US or in the UK had not done. So there was, we were free to create whatever we wanted or use like, you know, um, runes and Norse mythology, weaving that in into some kind of uh, communal spirit in a way. Um, and the same thing was, the same attitude was around uh, wherever Topi existed. It was like, and also another very beautiful thing about it was a very, very active uh, exchange of information. It's kind of hard to fathom uh, if you are someone who has never existed without the, in the internet existing. <laughs> uh, but there is actually, <laughs> there was a time when the internet <laughs> did not exist. <laughs> and and uh, it was just a lot of lists going back and forth and these newsletters. It was a lot of mailing, you know, insane amount of stamps being licked. <laughs> and uh, you could just, you know, write in your newsletter, you know, Carl in Stockholm is interested in this, that filmmaker. And then, you know, uh, maybe a month later, you would have some huge package of Xerox that someone in, you know, Salt Lake City or Berlin had put together for you, like a little compendium with Xeroxes of magazine interviews with that specific filmmaker. Mm -hmm. and, and that kind of reciprocal, um, exchange of information was incredibly uh, inspiring because it showed that even though you had never you know met these people out there, you were still on the same wavelength. And that's you know that's the thing of of uh, being or sharing, um, I guess you know secrets in a way, but it's sharing an attitude. It's it's a kind of an initiation in itself that you know makes you uh, trust people. Mm -hmm. So that's basically the, the uh, again, the condensed version. It's like it was a network, it was a think tank, it was an occult order or a magical order, and it was also a um, repository of much creative energy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seemed like it sort of drew upon, you know, like you said, elements of Thelema, chaos magic, and then also with like new multimedia. Like you can go on YouTube today and look at like Psychic TV and it's sort of, I mean, it's very pioneering for the time, like using yeah. different um, uh, multimedia effects and sort of different sounds to kind of alter your subconscious, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, just kind of going in there with that like sense of agency that we can use what is at our disposal um, yeah. in the modern world and also, of course, traditional techniques and going back to nature and mm -hmm. uh, things like that that you mentioned, but sort of to create a a movement, a sense of agency, art, and to bring our own sort of intent into things rather than um, being totally imprinted or dictated by what society or the political algorithms, or, you know, mass media is imprinting on you, sort of realizing that you have the ability to create uh, your own version of reality or however you see fit, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that there was, at some point, there was this sort of critical mass point uh, when computers had really, you know, taken off. I mean, the personal computer with the, the uh, Macs getting better and better, more capacity and stuff like that. The, the creative tools and the technology-based creative tools became so advanced so quickly, it was almost like instead of being an empowerment, <laughs> it became like a diversion. You know, people wow. you know, drowned in these first waves of photoshop filters or music <laughs> plugins where you can have make your own you know musical sequence programs and um it was fantastic but what changed was that it became abstracted from the real core of experimentation because it's not really experimentation to use a few uh, or to move around a few sound bites on on a graphic display you know uh, it can it can be a, a process of 
you know, seeing what sounds good and stuff, but it's not really the same as, as for instance, improvising music. And, and I'm not saying either is better or worse. It's just that Topi was very hands-on. It was very visceral. It was will and desire driven. And in this process, uh, uh, technology, if it's too readily available, um, can be, I don't know, suffocating in a way. You know, uh, because people who are pioneering, they seldom have everything served on a silver platter. Mm -hmm. um, they, they have to come up with these ideas and create their own technologies. And that's how I feel that Topi, um, how, how it was at the time, uh, because uh, there was no precedent. There's really nothing like it. You could say that, you know, Chaos Magic and specifically with the... Um, Illuminates of Tanateros, the IoT, they were parallel and they were certainly um, using a lot of similar, similar stripped, hardcore kind of Sparian um, uh, approaches to magic and to how the mind, how the human mind is the one, you know, the central platform that you have to work with. Uh, but Topi was, was uh, a little bit, had slightly, I would say, more flowers in their bouquet. Um, mm -hmm. The, this kinship, but uh, I think IoT was very much uh, for me. It's in gray, gray and black and white, uh, sort of uh, looking at the uh, cultural climate of the UK specifically at the time and, and, and things like that. Whereas Topi was slightly more, I don't know, colorful in a way. There were, um, it's just, uh, well, that's how I fe felt at the time. I may be mistaken, but, but uh, um, it's just something, some, some kinship, but there's also some great differences in between these groups. Mm -hmm. um, you had mentioned uh, in a other lecture that I listened, a lot about like shamanism and the relationship to magic. Do you see them as being distinctly different or is like magic is it shamanism essentially? How do, how do you see the relationship between those two? Things? Oh, it's it's one of my my uh, pet pet topics. <laughs> it's, it, everything, 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 everything comes from shamanism. Uh, you know, you can talk about the abstracted soulless rituals of of the established religions, or you could talk about uh, intuitive, you know, cyber magicians, or you can talk about uh, groups like Topi or, or uh, classical magical orders, anything having to do with getting in touch with like the soul or a higher state of, you know, uh, frame of mind or, or consciousness, uh, everything comes from, um, I wouldn't say shamanism, but I would say shamanic consciousness because that's been there since day one. And it's basically, you have, you know, primordial human beings alone or together you have fight or flight it's so primitive and then you know then you you um, have food in your belly and then you find uh, somehow a female and and you sort of uh, attack her and make her pregnant and, mm -hmm. and it's just it, it's so primordial you know and when people got together to find some kind of communal safety um they there were different approaches to how to deal with this incredibly threatening uh, situation and one of these things of course to to tell stories basically the first art expressions singing uh, telling stories uh, visual art dancing uh, these things that make you feel good you know together um, and in that is an empowerment and then of course I, no one can tell how it happened that you know uh, people you know started visualizing and tripping there has been much 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 um it's been much speculated uh, in recently also about these sort of quantum leaps that the human brain have uh, has uh, taken uh, throughout its development. And it's very, um, it seems very, very likely that it's connected with uh, psilocybin. Uh, so we have that aspect is that when you are safe and together and one of the things that you eat um, are, it's magic mushrooms, you know, <laughs> you will have a, a different approach than when you're completely rational and just in the fight, and fight or flight mode. Uh, so I think that has helped too. So the shaman was someone who um, calibrated his or her talents of visualizing the desired, uh, basically, and, and also visualizing controlling the undesired. Uh, and from then, it's just been 
developing and taking different forms and different shapes. Um, uh, of course, when human society becomes more abstracted, and for instance, when you become not a hunter anymore, but a farmer, and you have these places called villages that turn into towns, that turn into cities, that turn into countries, that turn into larger cultures, uh, there's still that, uh, there's still the need for that person uh, to interpret the inner spheres, the soul, uh, to the rest of the community. And we know what happened, of course, you know, uh, as um, human uh, culture became more complex, the, the spiritual or shamanic uh, things became like religious, you know, it's more and more and more by proxy, more and more and more removed from the original source. But the original source is shamanic. So anything today that deals with, you know, freestyle spiritual stuff or, or yoga or religion or hardcore magic, it all comes from that same original mind frame. So that, that's really my answer. Um, it's all about, again, not shamanism, but the shamanic awareness. And what that is, of course, you know, that we should define that, that is basically, you have to be rooted in nature, greater nature, and you have to be in, in, in contact, like viscerally, uh, or if you're scaled, it could be like a, a meditational mental thing, but then you have to go on this journey. And traditionally we know from, from cultures all around the world it's rhythm you know it's by drums and it's also by psychedelics and it's also by dancing mainly again it's ecstatic and in this ecstasy you go you travel in your mind and see things with your mind's eye and we have been taught in our cultural sphere that you know it's not real uh, but of course it's as real as anything we we experience in any other way you know, we, we should never, you know, <laughs> diss our senses or our visions or anything. That's just a, a control mechanism. So that I think is, is um, my approach. It's that whatever we're looking at from a magical anthropological uh, angle, everything uh, has its source in a shamanic uh, consciousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... Um... I mean, to me, when I look at a lot of traditions, religions, it's sort of like, especially religions, it's sort of like somebody else's, you talk about going inside and sort of seeing through the mind's eye and having those visionary experiences and sort of coming back with something perhaps. But uh, it seems like a lot of religion is like one person or one prophet's experience of that, his own personal experience, subjective, and then coming back and like codifying that as the objective reality you know, whereas mm -hmm. it was pertinent to that person, but now it becomes this whole, like, you know, objective egregore or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's always the same problem. It's, it's basically that, you know, uh, one person is fine, two per people can be fine, <laughs> but three people, three is a crowd. And then if you have yeah. even more people, there's a power dynamic. You know, everybody wants to be on top. Uh, and and uh, that's basically the story of, of human civilization or de-civilization. Uh, and, and that goes for religions too, of course, you know, you know specifically, not, not, not exclusively, but, you know, uh, specifically I say the, the monotheist religions mm -hmm. have been very, very detrimental uh, and have certainly been, been um, aiding the de-civilization because it has gone is a bit so abstracted from the shamanic consciousness and it's uh, and also the individual aspect the individualistic aspect and it's basically only a control function with some you know hocus pocus um and and uh, it's shame and i don't know what we should do about it but some i think something needs to happen um because otherwise it's all going down the drain unfortunately right sure it does seem problematic when you hold one view or one experience or one dogma as the only, you know, the, yeah. only, the only vision and the only realization. Right? Yeah, that, that's, that's what psychotic people do. Right. You know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, all right, to transition a little, um, to kind of backtrack, I suppose, you'd mentioned um, Austin, Osmond Spare's name a few times, mm -hmm. the work of, you know, the Temple of the Psychic Youth and, IOT and chaos magic in general. And he does have a very, uh, what would you say, sort of a, um, so almost like a saint in the pantheon, I guess you would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a good way to, uh, to describe him. But uh, 
I personally, I mean, I've looked at a lot of his art. I've only read one of his books, which was the Book of Pleasure. And that's a, yeah. that's a killer book. I mean, uh, I think I've read it like three or four times, actually, because yeah, it's a mind fuck. I'm sure that's how a lot of his other work is, too. But it's like, I need to read it over and over and over again and sort of go through these, like, crazy yeah. reality. T- it takes you on a journey, you know. But um, mm-hmm. uh, maybe you can kind of mention uh, what are some innovations of Austin Osmond Spare and a little bit about him and maybe even, like, other works, you know, that you recommend people to check out of his. Yeah, well, Spare would be, you know, um, if not number one, then, you know, <laughs> very close. Uh, because he was such, again, like this bridge figure. Because he, uh, you know, had some uh, connections to Crowley. Uh, they were, you know, parallel. Um, and um, Crow- Crowley, I guess, I don't know, he was more old school than a bridge. You know, Thelem as a philosophy wasn't really unique to him. You can trace that back to, you know, Schopenhauer if you want to. Uh, but so Spare was much more radical. And, and um, he had this thing where, you know, he wasn't interested in like, you know, group rituals or group dynamics or even a community. He was an artist. He liked to paint. He liked to do what he wanted to do. And he never sought, you know, fame he got uh, acknowledgement fairly early on and you know prizes and you know merit and uh, he's a very skilled draftsman and painter and he could probably have had a quite successful career but he stayed you know in and under the radar and you know made portraits of uh, uh, normal people you know people who commissioned him at pubs things like that but the interesting thing with this art it's interesting for many different reasons first of all you have the beautiful portraits uh, but when we talk about his magical vistas he painted a lot of things and drew a lot of things um, stuff that he saw uh, mm-hmm. as we said in his mind's eye so it's completely shamanic art he was a shaman mm-hmm. uh, but he also uh, used his uh, creativity um, both visually and also in terms of writing in a way by creating um, or uh, taking on and developing a system called sigilization. Uh, he used his artistic prowess and his creativity to work with letters and words and thereby with meanings. He sort of cut them up in a way, took away redundant uh, letters, made these letter forms into new forms by combining them, much like the bind runes traditionally in the Norse uh, region, uh, where you combine runes and make make them more into glyphs, you know, like, like visual uh, symbols. Uh, he did the same thing. And he also used a lot of automatic drawing uh, in his uh, sigilization and in his, uh, in his art in general. Uh, so that kind of hardcore attitude to trusting what you find inside and trusting that it's equally valid as any, you know, external um, input in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, also filtered through his very you know keen mind, sharp mind, but also an incredible artistry. He was such a you know incredibly talented person. Uh, that creates someone who is a magician on many different levels because you have the um, you know thalamic aspect in a way. You know I want this to happen, so I make a sigil or I make a work of art, whatever it is for it to contain my will, for it to contain my desire, and thereby by some kind of osmosis or butterfly effect, it will happen in, in the outside world. You know, that's, that's the, the work of the magician. But he was also someone who, by his um, excellence, both in the writing, like Book of Pleasure, for instance, that you mentioned, but also in his paintings, you know, he, he was quite prolific. So there's a lot. Um, and there have been beautiful exhibitions and books and stuff like that that people can check out. Uh, he also created um, an Austin Spare for the future. <laughs> you know, he, he, that was part of a larger magic, you know, for him to uh, uh, stay on in a way, uh, in a similar way. Uh, I would argue that if Crowley hadn't spent uh, so much of his inheritance of uh, <laughs> self-publishing beautiful books, uh, we would probably not have, you know, we would probably not be talking about him today. It's a way of leaving a legacy through talismanic objects. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also because they will help generate uh, myth 
and uh, gestalt, if you if you like, uh, something that lives on uh, after you're physically gone. Um, and what happens with many people who are creative, you know, it's just the, it's kind of hard to argue when you're dead, you know. So much of that is is left to the people who are are uh, uh, you know uh, later, and uh, if they don't like you, they will you know. Um, I don't know, slander you may be, and there's nothing you can do about it. However, if you have consciously left a lot of great art, there's really no argument because then everybody can at least make up their own mind and not having to listen to, you know, vile critics or, or to verbose yaysayers. You know, it's, it's much more a game where you can define your afterlife in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that he was uh, aware of these things and one thing that was also interesting with him was that uh, he was certainly aware of, uh, you know, people like Freud. You know, they were in the same zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this thing where you look at the human psyche as uh, divided, you know, you have the superego, so-called, in German it's called as Über-Ich, mm-hmm. uh, that is like, you know, morals and, and, and guidance and, you know, um, a pretty stern <laughs> captain of the ship in a way. And then you have the ego, which is like a chaos. Uh, and again, in German, it's called das Ich. It's, it's, that's the correct term, which is like, uh, who am I? Where am I going? What do I want? So you have this uh, trajectory, but it, the trajectory can be filled with confusion as much as clarity. And then, of course, underneath there's the primordial uh, you know what's called the subconscious, uh, uh, and and it's just like uh, drives, instincts, all these things. So that was in the zeitgeist to look at things that way. And and uh, although on the surface, uh, Spare was critical to to he called, for instance, uh, Freud and Jung. He called them fraud and junk. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Funny. That's yeah. hilarious. <laughs> yeah, no, it is hilarious. So he, again, so he was very much aware of their existence, you know. But at the same time, you can see that in his theories, like in the Book of Pleasure, for instance, where he tries to explain sigilizing and how it works, is basically as in an ecstatic moment. And for him, it was very much a sexual thing, mm-hmm. uh, whether in um, in uh, congregation or in masturbation. Um, you visualize the glyph in this enlightened ecstatic moment and then the glyph will according to his theory sort of drift down into the subconscious and then you try your best to sort of uh, null and void it consciously you try to not think about it and when the glyph or the symbol or the sigil is is, uh, forgotten and uh, you know at work in the subconscious that is the thing that will make it happen in the uh, outside uh, uh, visceral world Uh, it's an interesting idea and and uh, certainly been a key component of contemporary occultism in, in practice since since Perry first wrote about it. Basically, it's very, very much a part and parcel of uh, contemporary, uh, not magical philosophy, but magical practice in many different groups and, you know, orders. And, and uh, so he's been very, very, very influential in that mm-hmm. level. Yeah, it seemed like he was sort of uh, also stripping away, like coming from, like you said, um, Crowley and the Golden Dawn, sort of stripping away, like all all of these, uh, you know, like cabalistic uh, ca- systems, and um, yeah, sort of sort of like trying to get to the root of what causes change in consciousness and reality, and you know, manif- manifesting your desire, and sort of working into the subconscious rather than going yeah. through these. Uh, you know, different, um, I guess, overlays of different, you know, could be Jewish mysticism or whatever yeah. sort of uh, uh, systems you kind of superimpose on that, but kind of getting to the root of it, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what it seems like. But yeah, definitely a very influential figure overall um, that maybe maybe a lot of people these days overlook. I'm not so sure because he was very influential and still is, obviously, but um, I don't know how many people these days go back and sort of read through his materials. But yeah, 
Um, I think I think quite a few because, and I think again, there there you have the o culture aspect that's so important. I think that um, you know he left a legacy in in simply in his work and and uh, an aftermath that's filled with actual you know paintings and writings and books and uh, but it's also an aftermath and a legacy taken care of by others. You know, mm-hmm. the, all these uh, books are being published again, and there are studies and biographies and mm-hmm. and uh, so culturally. Um, I'm not saying oh, culturally, that's true too, but but culturally he has now more of a uh, presence in British art history, for instance, sure. than ever before. You know, so he's gone yeah. from being a, a minor, minor, minor to at least a major minor mm-hmm. in, in terms of uh, art speak. Um, so uh, I think that, and also I think you, you will never be able to leave Spare. And that has to do with the fact that he's so... Uh, there's so much signal mm-hmm. there. There's no fluff. There's no noise. Mm-hmm. Uh, having you know, often having to do with uh, communal power dynamics. You know that the best way to to uh, you know disrupt uh, a magical order is to create one. Because <laughs> as soon as there are people involved, there will be chaos. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, him being uh, like a freestyler or, or a lone wolf or, or uh, just focusing on the work that's um he was very smart in that sense oh for sure i love uh, i mean his art is incredible it, ha- it always has that like for me at least it has a sort of haunting uh trippy feel to it you know it's very yeah. it's very distinct is really the way i could describe it like you can see something like oh that's fair right like as it's yeah. sort of characteristic of the sort of uh i don't know how to explain it it's sort of like uh, haunting vibe yeah, to it or something you know? yeah i think i think uh, you know it's it's uh, uh it's it's beautiful you have the aesthetic perspective and it's also um very magical in the sense that it has this sort of subconscious presence mm-hmm. presence you know it's uh, things there that don't see they don't seem to be contrived or put there for any like cool reasons or anything there's no meta levels there's no irony you know a lot of the problem with the um, surrealists uh, at the same time was that they were very ironic you know they were very intellectual and and you had some some real crazy people like dali who made beautiful um, subconscious um, uh, you know, vistas, and he was also technically skilled, so it has that same um, power to affect you. Uh, but but uh, that's, I think that in a way, uh, Spare was a real surrealist in the sense that he uh, went down, you know, sir or sub, uh, and looked what he could find inside, and then he brought it back and displayed it through an aestheticized form. Uh, I do believe that uh, much of the other, you know, the, the classical surrealists who claimed they were so interested in psychology and the unconscious and the subconscious, it, it turned into kind of an, um, again, intellectual power dynamic about who's, who's the coolest. You know, we can see a lot of that in, in contemporary art. Also, it has no real signal. It, it's mm. filled with uh, uh, pretty desperate noise, usually. Right. Uh, most definitely. Most definitely. Um, I actually have a uh, listener question here. And uh, the person is asking, um, sort of, can you share a bit about the left-hand path or what, what people describe as the left-hand path? Because earlier you did mention uh, your involvement with uh, uh, LaVey and Satanism. And so can you kind of help define or share a little bit about that? What, what that is and um, how it's, if, if it does have any uh what distinguishes it from perhaps other sorts of practices? Right, uh, it, it's it's a very muddled uh, muddled area because originally uh, it's it's a term. If we talk about the left hand path, that's become so uh, you know inflated or and also deflated, and it's taken on new meanings, etc. You know, originally it was something. <sighs> describing certain parts of, uh, you know, um, uh, Hindu or, or a, me, Asian uh, aspects mm-hmm. uh, having to do with uh, tantric texts, uh, having to do with uh, rituals and meditations, mm-hmm. and also in, in combination, um, things having to do with using 
the body, mm-hmm. not necessarily neglecting or leaving the body as in, you know, the more med- meditative practices or even moral meditative pra- practices saying the body is bad and needs to be left, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's an Asian, Asian dichotomy. You find it, you can find it in Hinduism with their, you know, ascesis. You can also find it in, in um, Buddhism, you know, where you have, uh, for instance, the difference between um, Vajrayana, you know, it's called Tibetan Buddhism, which is very ritualized. You know, they're using the, 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 the body and with dancing and also uh, different experiments. And it's very, it is very visceral that, and it's ritualized. Whereas the Theravada, uh, Southern Buddhism is very meditative. You know, it leaves the body um, you just go into the mind and then try to leave the mind. Right, uh, more aesthetic. Good luck with that. Right. <laughs> and okay. So, but basically, I think it, it's it's uh, become a problematic term because then it was uh, romanticized by people who, who you know read about these sort of weird tantrics who did things in in uh, cemeteries or the you know cannibalism or they ate meat although there was a vegetarian culture you know all these things that become like a meltdown in 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 young people looking for radical things you know so the left hand path becomes associated with something that is dark mysterious and taboo and stuff like that so i think we should stop right there however uh, the the thing is that it's very interesting though because the same like Dichotomy actually exists in the West, and it's it's not an appropriation. It's just this thing. Maybe it's it's a monotheist thing with uh, you know Christian morals or whatever. Uh, so I, when asked that question, and specifically in, in in as you did, you know, in relation to Lavey's Satanism, for instance, I would say, yeah, that's very much a left hand path uh, because. Uh, it has nothing to do with, you know, admiration or, or respect or disrespect for any other tradition like Hinduism or Hindu left-hand path. But it's an acknowledgement that the body is remarkable and fantastic and a source of pleasure and a source of high, high, high magic. Um, so in that sense, yeah. Um, I would say I'm on the left-hand path, and, and, and I would certainly say that uh, Lavey and Satanism is an absolutely left-hand path in that sense. Uh, quite recently, I was on a uh, another podcast, and we talked about exactly this thing. You know, what what uh, what is it, and what does it really mean? And I gave the example there because we were talking again about about Satanism specifically, and I said that. Um, the, the equivalent of, of uh, left-hand path would be, for instance, the conscious integration and, and um, I don't know, intense pleasure of consciously eating your favorite chocolate bar. Uh, like like a you know a very conscious indulgence you know you have your favorite candy your favorite food your favorite wine whatever it is and you don't just eat it or drink it like a habit you know because anyone can do that that's what most people do but you take this thing and you hold it as sacred whether it's you know like a snickers bar whatever and you look at it and say fuck i like this and then you eat it as a ritual and that will affect you in a very good way uh, because it will give you pleasure. And pleasure is something that has become taboo in our cultural sphere, just as it is in that Hindu thing. You mm-hmm. know, the, the, the left-hand path people say that you can transcend the mind, you can transcend the body through, for instance, pleasure in the tantras that deal specifically with, with uh, sexual congress, for instance. Mm-hmm. So it seems to be an inherent <laughs> human dilemma for people who are working with these things. That how, how, how do we deal with the body? Is it something separate from our mind, or is the mind something separate from the body? And it's a, and for me, it's completely useless. It's pointless. It's it's a, a waste of energy to try and and um, I don't know figure out these things. Maybe that the dichotomy will always be there. Uh, I do think, however, uh, and that's my own personal um, point of view and preference, that the body is probably the best magical tool we have. Because uh, everyone, you know, we can do a lot of great things in our mind, but if we don't have some kind of, you know, what you call supernatural or extra natural uh, 
agency that takes the stuff you have in your mind out there, then nothing will manifest. Then you're just a dreamer, basically. Uh, and it's quite often through the body that these sort of mind programs manifest. I I'm saying I'm not saying that there aren't extra natural uh, or supranatural things that can happen in the terms of thought transference and things like that. But again, the body is what we have. It's a, it's a tool of attraction. It's a, a tool of uh, repelling. It's a tool of defending. It's a tool of attacking. It's a tool of radiating. It's a tool of inspiring. It's just an incredible um, thing that we have or that we are in a way. Um, so I would say that the left-hand path for me in its diluted form means basically acknowledgement of the power of the body mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in a magical yeah. context. Right, right. Like you were mentioning also in the Eastern traditions of Tantra as well, it's like using desire rather than um, uh, the ascetic tendencies of like cutting off your desire, cutting yeah. off your sense yeah. of perceptions. It's rather the inverse, I guess you would say, is using the desire, utilizing that. Yeah. Uh, exactly yeah as a, as a vehicle towards you know what you yeah. have it enlightenment or towards you know transcendence or some yeah. sort of ritualistic um, mechanism and what have you mm -hmm. yeah exactly mm -hmm. and the thing is it's in that sense it is kind of a uh, something that has an affinity with a western mind frame and i'm thinking specifically of one of the key you know definers of the western mind frame uh, Nietzsche, of course, you know, his definition of, of uh, joy in a way, it's in overcoming. We can only find things meaningful and be happy when we overcome things. And that sounds dramatic, and he was dramatic. But what it means is that if we have a problem, we will be happier if we overcome it than if we sit and brood about it. Um, and in a way, you know, that's, that's, you could say that the Asian attitude you know, <laughs> meaning, meaning no disrespect, but maybe they're brooding away their lives. You know, maybe they're not happy at all. Uh, maybe they won't be reborn at all or reincarnated. Uh, I think it's much um, healthier and it makes me more happy to overcome problems. And in that sense, uh, you can find that in the um, ecstatic or magic approach too, it's like... Um, you join with someone, for instance, in sexual congress, and you literally overcome yourself in that union. And that leads you to a mind frame in which you can charge, let's call it then, supranatural forces. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Um, I have one more question here written from the same person, actually. Um, he's also curious, like, having been involved in, um, you know, different orders and different traditions, do you have some kind of daily regular practice or do you sort of adjust it based on, you know, is it sort of, um, does it kind of rotate or do you adjust things based on your current circumstances? Uh, yeah, it, it's, um, I think that's, um, it's a very good question. And it made me, you know, made me think, uh, what do I actually do? And the thing is when you, when you begin, uh, and you're interested in these things, you look at it as something separate, like a separate set of tools or right. techniques or methods or meditations that you have to do to find something out. And of course, it will help if it, you feel a strong resonance with it and you find that it works and then you really integrate it in your life. Um, but we should never forget also that what all of this is about, according to me or a specific um, late 20th century magical approach. It's, it's, it's really uh, this, this Thelema thing, you know, you have to do what you want to do. Mm -hmm. And if that is not necessarily being involved in a lot of hocus pocus, yet you acknowledge the power of hocus pocus, then you can sort of sidetrack or short circuit that and sort of go straight for what you want to do. Because uh, meaning in, in, as a vocation, as, as a, as a, a work situation as uh, uh, something that fulfills you and gives you meaning that because that's really the goal and it's not a static goal you, you don't sort of achieve it and then stay there it should be something that moves on so what i'm saying is basically it is great with all the techniques traditions books inspiration magicians 
all the lore and mythology is invaluable as inspiration and information. But it's easy to be sidetracked by, the, by that uh, romantic lore uh, because it's colorful and it's very glamorous. Uh, so one needs to be uh, focused on what you want to achieve with all of these things because you could absolutely, you know, <laughs> find an analogy in drugs, for instance, you know, take this drug and it's great, you know, fills you with inspiration and it's colorful and, you know, you feel great and la, 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 la. But if it doesn't lead on to any deeper kinds of epiphanies or changes in um, perhaps a not so exciting lifestyle, then, then it's uh, escapism. And occultism and magic can also become escapism if it keeps you from going straight for the beauty of your own individual will. So I think one has to keep that in, um, in uh, you know, uh, in mind all the time. However, I will say one thing that I uh, stick with the, almost on a daily basis, uh, and there's been... Uh, so you know good for me and and re revealing continually and it's not difficult you don't need a master to teach you and it's simply meditation mm -hmm. you know and i don't necessarily even mean it's great to begin like with as always with traditions and to sit in, in the lotus position and stuff like that but that's not really what it's about it's about going into your mind trying to still it so that you can see the things that are important clearer I never try to blot my mind out, you know, like in the Asian situation, because why would I? My mind is a, a beautiful bazaar of creative things. I want that to be very vibrant and active. However, as we all know, our culture is very, uh, I don't know, um, saturated, <laughs> saturated <laughs> by technology, saturated by information, saturated by data, saturated by people. So it's easy to be disturbed, you know, and that's why I use, I use meditation as some, just a short moment at times, just still my mind so I could get back into my focus and be in my own bouquet of uh, uh, goals. Oh yeah, most definitely. Meditation is uh... Yeah, I feel like um, it is something that for me, I practice every day, but it's very um, valuable in just in yeah. life in general, like you're saying, whether it's, yeah. you know, um, I, yeah, yeah, still in the mind is very essential. Developing yeah. One point in this. Yeah. And also it's, it's not, it's something that transcends the, you know, the, the, the magic of it, you know, it just really yoga and meditation is really something that should be taught in school. Sure. Like just you know, for, for kids from, from day one. You know, because it has no affinity, has no, like, you know, strange morals. Uh, it's just technique that makes you a better person. Oh, yeah, most definitely. definitely. Um, okay, uh, let's see. I, I mean, you've written so much on the occult. And, you know, to kind of backtrack earlier, we were talking about Temple of the Psychic Youth. And you have a whole book out um, about uh, your conversations with uh, Genesis George. And uh, you do have a book also on sort of a, it's called A Culture, and it's um, sort of about uh, its influence in general on culture, right? And uh, yeah. yeah, just, I mean, obviously you've been studying, studying, practicing, and have this sort of historical um, disposition as well. Uh, well. How do you see magic in general? How do you see these uh, practices, uh, perhaps sort of on a historic and collective level? What, what do you see the role of magic on a historic level, a collective level, and on, on an individual level as well? Well, I think it's, it's a multifaceted uh, thing, and it, it carries on. It seems to be the carrier of uh, a tradition, uh, which is uh, in favor of uh, individualism. Uh, it's in favor of uh, freedom. Mm -hmm. uh, it's in favor of uh, experiment. It's in favor of uh, respecting nature. I mean, like greater nature. Um, and uh, because wherever you look, you know, uh, at the occult strains, it could be the occult strains of a monotheist culture, or the occult strains of an occult culture, or the occult strains of just some secular culture. Uh, it's always there, you know, under the surface. People want to be, um, you know, on their own, 
researching these things that are not sort of inside the sphere of acceptance, or it could be that they're outside because they're ostracized or, or uh, even, you know, that it's dangerous to deal with these things, depends on what, what time we're looking at. Uh, I do believe that uh, there's power in the occult, uh, meaning hidden, uh, in the same way as uh, there's power in a seed that's put in the ground. The seed won't sprout and bloom uh, above ground. It needs to be underground, um, immersed in nutrients and darkness and water. And then it will strike roots and then it will be strong and come up above the surface and and sort of be a beautiful and also oxygen <laughs> producing uh, thing uh, that will be uh, beneficial to uh, other uh, beings that's that's how i look at it it's a very uh, simple metaphor in a way but traditionally that's really what's happened you know so much of the science we have so much of the culture we have it, it has all come from somewhere um, beneath the surface. And that's really what occultism is. Oh, I love that answer. That's a beautiful answer. Um, okay, so do you have uh, any you know, upcoming books or projects or films that you would like to discuss? I did mention a couple of your previous um, projects and books, but is there anything on the horizon for people to uh, look forward to or check out? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, there's, there's always a lot of things going on. I mean, uh, right now I'm in the process of... Uh, wrapping up uh like an art book called the Trapartisan review uh, because i have this publishing company called trapar books and the Trapartisan review is an uh, art book and it's not i wouldn't say occult art but it, but it's there's a lot of interesting artists that that are definitely magicians um so that's going to be like a quite lavish uh, art book and i'm very happy with that because it's not not about text it's not about contextualization it's not about uh, intellectual pursuits it's just beautiful images that people have made in their own um, you know uh, free sp free space and free time and it's um I usually don't like these uh, terms, but uh, I'm very fed up with this term called outsider art. So I came up with insider art. Anthropartisan review is filled with insider art. It's for people who are on the inside. Um, they're insiders into their own process and they are willing to share it. And I'm happy to be the one who shares it in this particular uh, context. So that's one thing. And then, um, I have a book coming out in mid-February called uh, Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan, mm -hmm. uh, Infernal Wisdom from the Devil's Den. Uh, and it's basically an extension of the film that I made a couple of years ago called Into the Devil's Den. And it has to do with my relationship, my personal friendship with uh, Anton LaVey and, and with people uh, who knew him at the same time, basically his last decade it's a massive book filled with interviews and rare material and and my own stories uh, so that's uh, i would recommend that people get that book because it's not only about him it's about the his satanic philosophy uh, as a whole also so i'm very proud about that book and also the film that sounds interesting when did you say that one was uh, coming out it comes out uh, i think it's uh, february 15th or something Okay, cool. All right. Um, where can people find you uh, online and what, uh, where do you recommend people to uh, look up your stuff? Yeah, it's, it's uh, all over the place, but, you know, it's good with these gateways where you can uh, sort of uh, delve deeper. One of these would be uh, the Patreon that I have with my wife, Vanessa Sinclair. So that would be patreon.com uh, slash uh, Vanessa23Carl patreon.com slash vanessa23carl and then of course my own site that's easy to remember carlabrahamson.com and through those sites you know there's a lot of information both places and uh, you'll find all the uh, uh, social media connections etc and then of course if people are interested in, in the books that I publish uh, some of them are my own but not all of them that's trapar.net T-R-A P-A-R-T dot net. Okay, great. Are all of your uh, books available there as well? Uh, no, because some of them are published by others, uh, okay. like Inner Traditions in the US and, and some others. Okay, I'm always I curious, think, uh, I'm curious, like, would you recommend, uh, <laughs> like, 
like some people are like, don't go through Amazon, go through, you know, my website or this uh, uh, publisher site. Do you have any, you know, uh, words on that or does it not really no. matter? No, for me, for me, it's, it's, uh, I'm the opposite. I just want to make it very, very um, easy for the customers. And I would absolutely recommend go through Amazon because they are actually, you know, regardless of what you think of <laughs> the man or, or, you know, whatever, he wants to go to space. That's fine. But in terms of simplicity and also prices and, and shipping and stuff, I find it remarkable. And also I'm producing uh, a lot of the uh, Trapar books are, via Amazon. So that, that is totally the best way to, to get them, actually. So if you go to Amazon and look for, uh, I think it's called uh, author Carl Abrahamson, or just search for my name, my author page will pop up and there you see all the books there. Okay, great. Yeah, I like that uh, you're making it easy to <laughs> get access yeah. to the information and the yeah. material you put out there. That's great. All right. Thanks for the uh, excellent conversation. I really personally enjoyed this and I think a lot of the listeners will as well. And uh, all of the links and websites and your Patreon that you had mentioned will be included in the show notes. So um, anybody that wants to connect with you or look into you yeah. can uh, find it in the show notes here. So, yeah, thanks again yeah, for, for coming on. And if you have any other uh, final thoughts or parting words? No, 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 no. Just uh, thanks for having me. It was great. And, and uh, people should uh, just feel, feel totally free to, to contact me. Sometimes it'll take a day or two, but but uh, just, uh, yeah, uh, don't be a stranger. And I hope we can talk again sometime. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. Okay, thank you very much.